this encouragement this morning. Let's read the first six verses again of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been a couple weeks since we've been here. And for those of you who are guests, we've been discussing what it means to have a, a personal ministry life of integrity in a local church and then what it is collectively to have that integrity. And uh, the reason why Paul's talking about this is because remember the Corinthian church had begun to doubt his personal integrity. They began to doubt him because of the influence of these local church invaders that have come in that are just merely religious people that have um, infiltrated the church and uh, caused them to begin to believe that Jesus is not sufficient, that the message of the gospel that, that Paul taught, that Jesus is enough, he's just never enough. We've always got to add to him. Um, and there's been a remnant of people in the Corinthian church that have been adversely affected by these invaders and have been compelled to distrust the message of the gospel that Paul preached and they've been suffering accordingly. What we're going to focus on this morning is one of the ways that people suffer in a local church when Jesus isn't enough or they're compelled or convinced by somebody else that he's not enough, is that their relationships, their interpersonal relationships inside the church struggle. And then they really don't know how to develop redemptive relationships outside the church. So that's a fascinating leap that you just took there, Pastor Tim. Well, it's true. If we're unsure of our relationship, the permanence of our relationship with Jesus Christ, as individuals inside the church, then we certainly don't have the divine relationship to build our relationships. And therefore, we have no message of how the gospel changed us to take to those who don't know him yet in the community. It makes all the sense in the world. And that's what unbelief does if it infiltrates the church. If it can get you to doubt your relationship with Christ because he's not enough, then they're already on their way to convincing the church that it doesn't need interdependent relationships within herself. And then we're weak need at best spiritually when we walk out into the community and, my goodness, we have no gospel left to tell because we don't have a gospel that changed our lives personally and then collectively, so how in the world do we have a gospel to tell evangelistically? Right? So Paul's got to take some time here, and he really does this even through the early parts of chapter 7 by just convincing the people that the gospel that he told was true, it was exclusively Jesus enough. How it had changed him and how they knew that it had changed him by the amount of time that he had spent with them to see and to hear the change. But they're doubting, and he's got to just remind them of what gospel integrity is. And that's what we're studying, just by way of a reminder. Verse 1, chapter 4, Therefore we have this ministry, as we have received mercy. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. That's what we looked at last time. That was the negative 
obedience, if you will. These are things that Paul did not do, nor would he ever do. But this is where we left off last time. We'd like to spend most of our time today on the positive. But if we don't do those things, this is what we can and should be doing if we find Christ enough, is continuing to build our relationships, right? Inside and outside the church. He says, but by the manifestation of the truth, and by the way, in the margin of your Bible, if you want to draw a little line, that's gospel truth. That's actually the truth there within the framework of the immediate context would be the content of the gospel. And if we want to write below that, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, that's the content of the gospel. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended. And his person and work are enough. So keep that in mind. It's critical as we understand the development of relationships inside and outside the church for the gospel's sake. But by the manifestation of the truth, of, of, the, of gospel truth, of, of, of God's grace transforming us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're able to commend ourselves to every man's conscience. We got that far last time. Every man, obviously, that's going to be both saved first and unsaved second. Because either every man either knows the Lord Jesus as their Savior or they don't. Commend ourselves, every man's conscience, in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If we don't get to that verse this week, we will next. But basically what Paul's saying here, because they had doubted his integrity, they were criticizing his lack of success in ministry now. We'll find this out later this week or early next week. And if our gospel is veiled, these invaders had convinced, like I said, a remnant of the Corinthian church to believe that Paul, when he preached, really didn't have a successful message because there wasn't that many people that were saved. Right? Religious people love to play the numbers game. They love to play the performance game. They love to play the, you know, man looks on the outward appearance, right? Religious people love to evaluate, to typecast by what they see. And when they looked at Paul's ministry, they didn't see tens of thousands of people listening to his preaching. They saw very small groups of people. Church history tells us that probably the largest church in the first century was the Ephesian church, and at her max, she would have been about 250 people. Okay. When he writes to the Colossian church, the book of Colossians, historians tell us at her max, she was 25 people. So these religious invaders were going, you know what, 25 in a whole city? 250 in a city of probably 800,000 at that time? Only 250? Really? And that's probably not just in one church. It's probably in other small churches that Ephesus had planted in that city. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this message is that powerful after all. So Paul's having come to defend the message. And he knows what Jesus said. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life underlasting. And what? Few there be that find it. 
few there be that find it. So Paul knows he's part of this gospel triumph. He knows that his life is lived as a savor of life unto life and or death unto death. He's going to stay true to the message, right? Remember, we're commending the truth of the gospel to other people's conscience. And quite frankly, he's saying here in verse 3 that unbelief is unbelief not because his message isn't powerful, but because of their own sinfulness. And boy, that coupled with the God of this world that continues to make it his life's mission to blind men's eyes to understanding the content and applying the content of the gospel to their own hearts, yeah, that's why you're at where you're at. That's why unbelief is where it's at. It's not because the message isn't powerful. It's just a, descript, a description of how of the sinfulness of sin and man being wrapped up in it. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we've taken these six verses and we've divided them up into a handful of points for you. And we talked last time together about Paul's divine motivation. Um, in verse 1, we talked about his motivation being one of consistency and humility and determination. We do not lose heart. We talked about divine activity last time. We began to, in verse 2, negatively, and we began to talk positively here. And then next week and Maybe even the next week after that. I'm going to really take my time through this. We're going to look at Paul's divine rationale, as we just read in verses 3 and 4, and then his divine message in verse 5, and then a conclusion here in verse 6. Let's go back and let's talk about more fully, more completely, this reality that we live as God's people in verse number 2. We've renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness, adulterating or diluting or adding to or watering down the word of God. But here's that adversative again that Paul loves to use in this letter. This is what we do by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, both those who are saved within the church and obviously those who are yet to be saved who Paul would call in Colossians chapter 2, excuse me, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, the outsiders, those who are outside of Christ as of yet. Tom Rainer is, a, is an author that I, I read from time to time, and um, some of you may be familiar with him and his writings and um, what he's been putting out mostly what he's been writing mostly lately is, is the condition of the state of the church during and post-COVID. Uh, he's, he's telling us what's been going on inside the church uh, nationwide, and then he's, um, by polling with the polling company, he's beginning to put data together to be able to predict where the state of the church will be going forward from here, even potentially in a post-COVID world, so to speak. 
And he highlights in his most recent article five things that will be descriptive of church members and already is. Obviously, he says there's going to be, first of all, the decreasing attendance of church members to church. He says these were your members who at one time attended church almost four times a month. Before the pandemic, their frequency of attendance declined to twice a month or even once a month. COVID accelerated their trends and they're now attending zero times a month. And he talks about a second type of member, the disconnected church member. If a church member is in a small group, his or her likelihood of returning is high. If they attend worship only, their likelihood of attendance is much lower. And then he says, please let this reality be a strong motivation to emphasize in-person discipleship. Once everyone feels safe to return, he says, thirdly here, the church um, is another activity to some members. It's just another activity. He said, these church members see gathered attendance as yet another activity on par or lower than other activities. They were the church members who let inclement weather keep them from church, but not their children's Sunday soccer games. Commitment to the church was a low priority before the pandemic, and they have no commitment to the post-quarantine era of the church. He said, then there's the constant critic church member. These church members always had some complaints for their pastor. In fact, your pastor may be dying a death by a thousand cuts. They are likely still complaining even though they have not returned to in-person services, and many of them will not return at all. Um, sadly, I don't find that to be true here, Grace, but I have a lot of friends in ministry who are enduring that right now. And then there's the cultural Christian member. And he describes them as they were a part of a declining group, group, group well before the pandemic. They were those church members who likely were not Christians but came to church to be accepted culturally. Today there are a few cultural expect, uh, expectations for people to attend church. These cultural Christians learned during the pandemic that it was no big deal for them to miss church. And it will be no big deal for them to never return. Why go through these things? Why go through these five kinds of church members? Not because I believe any one of these five exist here. And if they do, it's a, such a small percentage of the people who would proclaim Christ here. So I'm really super thankful for how you love the Lord, his word, and love each other, and grow each other in the word, and how, how you're burdened for lost people to be born again. And I hope you all got the new birth announcement this last week of that gal trusting Christ as our Savior because of the disciple-making ministry of you folks in our church. But we can't get away from the reality here of verse number two, this positive activity that we are to all be involved in. It's commending the truth. We're commending the truth of the gospel And while we're commending the truth of the gospel, we're commending what the gospel has done to transform us personally. Notice it says here, he's not commending himself 
We're not commending ourselves. We're commending the truth of the gospel and its influence that it's had on ourselves, if I can say that. And we're commending it to the conscience of believers and unbelievers. We're going to talk about that the rest of the time. If you have a gospel, you have a transformed life. If you have a gospel, that transformed life is first known, obviously, by the people you live with in your home, but it's secondarily known by the people that you worship with at church. What's happening apparently across our country is people are finding out, Bible-believing pastors are finding out that unbelief existed in their churches long before COVID. And now coming out of COVID, they're finding a people that have little to no need for in-depth, interdependent, transparent Christian relationships. And they're finding out that they had a lot of form over function, and it's easy come, easy go for church. Paul says here, this is a lifestyle that we live if we've truly understood the gospel and it's transformed our life. You know, when I first met Rhonda, and to this day, I can't stand to be away from her long at all. When I see her, I know it's going to, I hope, I don't know, I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, like my heart still races when I see her, when I haven't seen her for a while. And sometimes I step back and it's like, why is it still doing that? You know? But I take a deep breath, and I don't think she knows my heart's racing that fast. Maybe I should tell her it does. I guess I just did if she's live streaming. <laughs> I just love her a lot, like a lot, right? You know, same thing with my kids, right? You know that. Amen. You know? Especially when, especially when you know that your family's been hurting in some kind of way. When you're hurting and then you're away from each other, don't you long more passionately to be with each other and to see each other because you need each other? Spiritually, that's the kind of way it should be in the church. When I see you spiritually, my heart races. I come to you a broken, right, guy that's persevered during difficult weeks just like you. And we need Christ in each other. And therefore, we need the lives that have been transformed by each other. And we should not be able to live without each other. Paul tells the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you yourselves are taught of God how to love each other. So therefore, I don't have to teach you how to love each other. Only increase more and more. It was on later in chapter 5 and verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians that these people demonstrated that love in a lot of different ways, but the general umbrella way that Paul describes their care for each other, they were building each other up in their faith since the moment they were born again. They had to have each other. So yeah, in a spiritual sense, all of you, my heart races. I'm in the presence of the bride of Christ. I'm with the saints who have been loved with an everlasting love. I walk on holy ground for we walk among the temples who have been indwelt by the Holy One of God. We're among today 
those who outside of Christ most genuinely interested in, in, in uh, who are inside of Christ most generally interested in my soul. You are here to invest in me and I and you and you and one another because this is a sacred trust committed to us in the gospel. We are commending the truth in ourselves, how the gospel has changed us personally. It's the very heart of Christ, for he says, love one another as I loved you. Thousands across the country are contemplating a permanent breakup with the bride of Christ. I certainly don't think that's the case here. As I said earlier, I'm so thankful for that. But I do feel there's some here that we'll never see again. And the test of this trial we're still enduring did not produce perseverance in some. It loosened it even more and more, and some even cut the cord. My heart aches for these dear friends. It really, truly aches for so many reasons. But so as to not focus too long on such a small percentage of struggling souls, and certainly not to focus on souls in other churches we may never meet the side of heaven, can I ask this question? If I'm not in love with the bride of Christ, can I truly say that I love the groom? You can simply say, I love God, and then walk away from his bride, and that certainly makes no sense, does it? My biggest concern are for those younger people who are second, third, and fourth generation Christians who handle the bride of Christ like they would their exercise routine. I can go with it or without it, and I'll be fine. I just really wonder if their love of God was merely intellectual and not emotional and volitional. Paul knew there were Corinthians who were professing believers that were affected by this falsehood that was trying to tear apart relationships in the church, therefore tearing people apart from the church. And this falsehood was destroying interdependency inside the local church for spiritual purposes. And can I remind you of this, that falsehood doesn't appreciate deep and wide relationships, developed relationships in Christ. It just doesn't. It has no need for them. And when they see people enjoying them, it's kind of an offense to them. Paul knew the Corinthians were having a hard time trusting him and even each other anymore. And they're being pulled apart. But you remember Paul's mindset in this whole situation going back a few verses that we discussed a, a couple weeks ago? He was in such agony in chapter 2 over not seeing a particular guy. Do you remember that guy? Remember Titus? He went to Troas to try to find Titus, to be encouraged by him, because Titus was a dear uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, uh, verse 4, Paul calls Titus a true child in the faith, which 
probably indicates that it was actually Paul's disciple-making ministry that actually personally had seen Titus come to Christ and was developing him as a young believer. So they had that bond, and he passionately needed to be with him and to see him for that reason. But secondarily, remember, he was carrying the report from Corinth how they had received his first difficult letter. And he wanted so long, he wanted so much to hear good news from the church of Corinth. How are my, how are God's people? How are my friends in Corinth doing? Are they sticking together? Are they growing? I wrote such a difficult letter to them. I hope, I hope they were offended in the right way and convicted, but I hope they're persevering. I've got to know how the flock's doing. I need to know how the flock's doing. And his heart is mindful of the apostle john's heart i have no greater joy than to find my children walking in the truth and doing so together right paul so longed to hear how the relationships with christ and each other were in corinth that he left that open door for the gospel in troas and sped to macedonia just to calm his heart that the church was okay and the people of god were intact with christ and with one another we're talking about the integrity of divine activity of the church. Remember, she meets together. She grows together. She weeps and rejoices together. Each part connected with the other grows the other up into a fuller understanding of Christ. She interdependently and passionately and personally builds up the bride with individual responsibility and care. Paul knows this. And so to underpin his conviction about the spiritual intimacy the church enjoys, he says, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Every man's conscience. The word manifestation, you remember from last time, means full disclosure. Full disclosure. A comprehensive understanding The word manifest or manifestation is really a sub-theme of Paul's life in this letter to the Corinthian people. Why? We're going to discuss that. Remember, they're already doubting his integrity. We don't have to remind you why. We've reviewed that. But it's a sub-theme here. We're going to look at two verses specifically this morning and apply those as we wrap up. The truth of the gospel that's changed our lives, individual and collectively, is to be made familiar to both the saved and the unsaved, as it is already fully known to God himself. Go over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at another time he uses this word manifest in this epistle. He says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He's speaking of the bema seat here, the judgment seat that the believers, the church age, will um, experience at the return of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. Obviously, that's a simple one for us to grasp. God's om omniscient. He omnisciently knows us, right? Psalm 139 makes that very, very clear, both physically and spiritually. Before we're formed in our mother's womb, he has this omniscient knowledge of our person. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. 
So there's an omniscient full disclosure that the divine one has of us that Paul is saying, I expectantly have of you. Though finite and not because, though, though finite because I, he's not infinite, and certainly we aren't, there's this natural spiritual reaction to being fully known by God is to allow ourselves to be fully known by one another. Remember back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we mentioned to you how the Thessalonian people were taught of God how to love, so they didn't be taught how to love. There's three ways. There's three ways that they love each other in verse 11. Okay. They love each other by not making issues out of non-issues. They love each other by minding their own business. And they love each other by working hard with their hands. Right. So somehow, uh, the Thessalonian believers learned how to know each other well enough where Paul was able to commend them for loving each other that way. They're not making issues out of non-issues. They're building each other so much up in the gospel and in gospel truth and in the scriptures that they have no time to be intrinsically nosy. And they're fulfilling their work obligations in the community where they're being light for Christ. He goes on later in chapter 5 and verse 14 to say they've been loving each other Every kind of Christian in the church, all kinds are in Christ for sure, but he talks about the feeble-minded and the weak and the unruly. And he says, you're being patient with all of them. There's a, a no-soul-left-behind approach for the people who are making the truth of the gospel manifest in their own lives to one another. There's a deep and wide spiritual transparency and interdependency that the people of God must have and it starts with how God's manifested himself to us and how he expects us to manifest ourselves to him in Christ and then how we manifest ourselves to one another. I think about how we do this in worship. We know that the psalmist said, search me and know me, Lord, see if there be any wicked way within me. We just kind of went through that, right, in the Lord's Supper. Psalm 15, we desire to lift up clean hands and, and pure hearts in the context of worship. Worship of God's people is unto an audience of one God himself and is also a declaration to those around us here today that we are practically right, positionally right, and practically in fellowship with him, therefore announcing to the saints' presence that our conscience is in a good place with God. You've already begun to do this in the context of worship and uniquely in the Lord's Supper celebration this morning. Think of how critical this is in relationship to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, another worship context. Is there any provoking one another to love and good deeds if our consciences are not made manifest to the flock first? Another worship context, if you want to write down here in the margin of your Bibles, Colossians 3, 11 to 17. The divine activity of this worship context must include saints in some fashion or another that are familiar enough with the truth of the gospel and how it's changed each other to be able to effectively minister to one another and to let the word of Christ dwell in us ritually. Passages like these and others reveal to us that the church cannot be merely acquaintance, rich, and relationship poor. 
While we may not be able to deeply relate with every saint here at Grace, we can manifest the truth of the gospel while we commend our consciences to other believers, all in the sight of God, in effectual ways, in practical ways. We do this in our spiritual mentoring relationships, our discipleship, while we study the word together. We do this while we pray and persevere in attempting to reach our lost friends and relatives together. We manifest how gospel truth is teaching and guiding our consciences between each other as we live through the natural rhythms of life during the week together. And most of you can publicly proclaim this morning that if you're in a disciple-making relationship, those relationships are not just study a chapter on a Wednesday night for an hour, Part, and we'll see each other next Wednesday at 7. You know how they've developed into day by day walking with each other in Christ likeness through the bumps, the roadblocks, through the peaks and the valleys of life. It's happening, isn't it? And you're showing, you're putting your life on full display how the gospel changed your heart, your mind, your thinking, therefore your way of life, and you're living that Christ like life for somebody else's encouragement. That's what Paul's talking about here. Religious people don't like that type of spiritual intimacy. They just want to go to church. They just want to do church. As I sit with those who mentor me, I cannot tell you how wonderfully convicted, encouraged, and borne along I am by these sweet saints who make the truth of the gospel manifest to my conscience as we walk together in the sight of God. This is the environment-rich soil where we truly know what it means to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. All of the one another's of Scripture are fulfilled in these relationships when we, by open statement of the truth, commend ourselves to one another's consciences in the sight of God. In addition, consider this as well. By yet another word, another time the word manifest is used in this letter. Let's go back now to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And what? Manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him Where? before all men and in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There it is. The saved and the unsaved. There's this full manifestation to the one an aroma of death and to death and the other aroma of life and to life and who is adequate for these things. It's hard to wrap our minds around these things. But Paul says here that we are part of the triumph. And he adds here that we are to make ourselves manifest the truth. Remember, gospel truth and how it's changed us personally. And then commend ourselves, that changed self, even to unbelief. But folks, this is super hard. That's why it's just super easy to come to church a couple times a week. Four times a month and just dot your eye cross your t and go home because you know what it's just life's just a lot easier that way it is isn't it what paul's talking about here is this guttural agony 
of having to put my life and how the gospels change my life on display among God's people, that takes time. And now he's saying I've got to do the same thing among those who don't even know Jesus yet so that they can know me well enough to know that I actually have a changed life. Way too much time, way too hard. you got to be kidding me. Well, not too many people come along with that message. Few there be that find that narrow way. Few there be that even would claim the name of Christ follow that path. But this is what Paul's literally saying here. How much time does this take? Can it be done merely by just handing someone a piece of gospel literature? Can it be done merely by just naming the name of Jesus in a punch and judy kind of way throughout your week? Can it merely be done by just speaking the gospel to someone on a flight home from a distant place in a moment of time? There's certainly nothing wrong with those situations if the Holy Spirit guides your heart to speak truth in those circumstances. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about situational proclaiming. He's talking about really taking time to let someone else know you well enough to even let unbelief discern if you're changed. They're made in the image of God, right? They're image bearers. They have intrinsic value. Part of that being made in the image of God is they're rational, right? God's given them a moral conscience. They're able to tell whether you're legit or not. (laughs) Maybe sometimes we don't want to really grant them that much time to look into our lives, to test the veracity of our faith. That's uncomfortable. But Paul says here to someone who's truly heard the gospel, not like these religious ones that have infiltrated your midst, but those who truly have been influenced by the gospel has transformed the way they live and they're okay with their life being on display before belief and unbelief. They're commending their conscience that's been transformed. Your gospel life is an appeal to the very conscience of man who is made in the image of God. Your life must be lived before these dear image bearers, and they must discern. All this is done, as the text says, in the sight of God. You are pleasing to God in Christ. Now manifest Christ before man everywhere you go. Don't be afraid to develop some deep and wide relationships with unbelievers. Because as you walk With God, you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. And they need to see how omnipotence changed you. And they need to hear it too. One author said, Thus by the straightforward nature of his ministry, Paul invites the approval of everyone, convinced that when true to their own consciences, they will be forced to acknowledge that Paul even himself personally has acted towards them with integrity. And this integrity should mirror the holiness of God. 
And to those who are here today who passionately hold to what God has taught us in this phrase, just keep persevering. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian will ever be satisfied with the way you manifest gospel truth to believers or unbelievers. But just because they say they're Christian doesn't mean they really are. Keep persevering. Always remember that this commendation of gospel truth is not to impress man, but to minister Christ to man. The consistency, the humility, the person of Christ to man. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, but to me, it is a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted by this, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And that's really what he's saying here. This is God, this is God's son, this is God's gospel, this is how his gospel changed you, so it's really nothing of you. And there really is nothing to be judgy about if we're constantly doing our best to commend how the gospel truth has changed our lives to one another and to the lost. Because if people have any finger to point or to stick in your face, may they be sticking it in the eye of God and not you. If there's something that they don't like about you, may it be maybe Christ. the holiness of God. So is your life on display to at least one or two saints? Is your gospel changed life on display among belief? Outside of formal worship? And may I ask you, are you commending your gospel changed conscience to unbelief? And I know there's not much time during the course of the week. But are you at least seeking to build a relationship with, the, with at least one or two lost people that you can fish with, you can hunt with, you can jog with, you can coffee with, you can knit with, you can play cards with, you can go to games with? Are you willing to just kind of put your gospel change life out there personally, in some way. Pray about that. But some of us may first need to pray about being intimately involved with the bride again and in this personal way. Okay? And may the Holy Spirit of God have his way in application to our hearts with both ways of commending our Christ-changed conscience before man. Okay? Love you all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your patience with me. Probably the chiefest of sinners in the room. Not probably. You know me, I know me. That's the reality. But thank you, Lord, for the transformation that only Christ can bring, the grace of God can bring in Christ. And and thank you, Lord, for the transparency that that births in our lives. And I pray within the context we would all understand 
falsehood doesn't want this transparency. Disgenuine professing believers don't long for this need of this kind of gospel changed commending of our consciences to one another. So Lord, there may be some who have been distancing themselves from the church who may need to be born again. Help them to see that the DNA of God in Christ develops this intentionality of obeying this participle, always commending the truth in ourselves, how it's changed us to every man's conscience. Help the relationships that are started among the flock in discipleship to grow deeper and wider. And Lord, as they do, help our relationships with those who need Jesus in our community to grow deeper and wider for Christ's sake. In his name we pray, amen.